this happened last week as well, but like as I'm trying to make the old, the old quick change between baptism and coming down here, it's awesome. You can hear you guys singing all over the place. Like it's really, really cool and encouraging to hear. Uh, like just right at the end of the baptism, I was just thinking, I was like, man, we, we, you can't watch something like that without there being a something stirring in you, you know, and to have the opportunity to just sing it and express it. It's just such a gift. In John chapter 8, we find a really special and unique passage of Scripture. Um, So during the the course of the Lent season, you know, we're two weeks away from Palm Sunday, and then Holy Week, and then Easter Sunday, and so we're, it's, it's, it will gain in intensity if you are practicing Lent uh, along with us. And so continue to fast and replace it with prayer. Continue to fast, uh, fast whatever in your life. Uh, fasting lunch on Wednesdays and praying there. We, um, we have the, do- the dollar offering for the Women's New Life Center back here in the rotunda. You can just drop a dollar, two dollars. Someone brought a coffee can full of change today, which is like probably a lot of dollars. And so we'll take that too. It doesn't really matter. Uh, all these things that we're practicing together are pushing us in a direction. And, you know, Lent is modeled after Jesus's 40 days of fasting and prayer in the desert. And, uh, we essentially join with Christians all over the world in sitting with him in the desert, uh, doing the things that he did. And so, you know, he, he fasted, so we fast. He prayed, so we pray. He entrusted himself to the Father, so we entrust ourselves to the Father. He uh, wrestled with flesh and temptation, so we wrestle with flesh and temptation. He identifies lies and battles them with truth, so we identify lies and battle them with truth. He prepares for what's ahead, so we prepare for what's ahead. He sets his face toward Jerusalem and the cross. We set our faces toward Jerusalem and the cross. Uh, it is, we're identifying with him through presence and through imitation. And so the previous three Sundays, we've looked at, at that specific account of Jesus fasting in the desert at the, for 40 days at the end of this period of time, the enemy comes to tempt him and been looking at how he models, um, what it means when he tells us, if you want to, if you want to be like me. You deny yourself, you take up your cross every day, and you follow me. And he shows us what that looks like in real life in that passage. And so I would encourage you to catch up on some podcasts and stuff uh, if, you, um, if you're a little behind on things. But uh, it's through watching our rabbi okay, deal with these things. He's modeling for us what we are to do. And through that imitation, there is this transforming that happens with us. Like you should find yourself... Um, like becoming, you should kind of be able to look at your life and say, yeah, like, you know, however long ago I would have handled that situation this way, but I feel like I'm a little bit different now. You know, I've had a few people come up and say like, just in different areas of life just say, Hey, I, I just want you to know, like, I, I feel different. Like I am, I am changing. I'm morphing. Jesus is doing something in me, you know, and that's, you have no idea how encouraging that is. Uh, and so if ever you're like, man, I just really want to tell someone how awesome Jesus is being in my life and don't hesitate to do that. Like that's, that reminds us that we're not just dealing with the worst parts of life together. We're dealing with the best parts of life as well. And it reminds us that God is at move. And so there's this combined effort though, in our transformation, 
So we're sitting with him. We're watching what he does, how he handles the temptation, how he handles the fast, how he handles trusting the Father, all these things. And we're, we're imitating that. And, and through that, there's this transformation that happens. But it's a reminder, though, that it's not a, it's not a, like our, our morphing is not this thing where we do everything and God just kind of watches us to see if we're going to get it right or wrong. Um, so it's not 100% us and he's just taking score, you know. Um, but it's also not where the thing where like, it's 100% him and we just sit back and he either, he just does what he wants with us, changes us, doesn't change us, whatever. And we just kind of sit back and we don't do anything. So we're not passive. We're active. So it's not all him and no us or all us and no him. It's not even 50, 50, you know, it's, it's 100, 100. It's a hundred percent him and a hundred percent us working together. Now, mathematically, that's not as nice and neat as 50-50, but I was never very good at math, so just roll with it a little bit. Um, I use that Yogi Berra math where, like, this is kind of how it works. And so it's 100% God's effort, and it's 100% our effort not to earn it. But he says, no, we're going to work together on this. So this is, the, this is a tandem bicycle of transformation that's happening. And it takes both of us riding and giving it 100%. And that's where that morphing and stuff happens. And so um, in the last couple of weeks, in looking at his temptation in the desert, he's modeling self-denial, which is saying no, no to my like, self-indulgent, uh, like the self-indulgent nature of temptation. It's saying no to that. Uh, he models what it means to take up your cross every day, which is essentially just, it's obedience no matter what it costs. I'm going to be obedient today, no matter what it costs me. Uh, tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Today, I'm going to, I'm going to walk with him and he'll take care of me tomorrow as well. Whatever the path is in front of me. And then following is just, is just really just staying close to the father, staying close to God, walking in a relationship with him. And so in the face of temptation, Jesus gives us this example to follow. He does this in part because he knows that we are also going to face this. Jesus' experience in the desert is not this unique thing to human experience. It's, uh, like it's, it's so common. And I think as we went through those three weeks, if, if you were here for all three of those, you're like, man, that's the, like the enemy hadn't changed anything. He's still trying the same old stuff. Uh, it works on us. It'll work on Jesus, but that's why he keeps trying the same things. It's, it's kind of effective. And so Jesus wants us to know how to handle that stuff. He wants us to know you don't, you don't have to be burdened by sin and death. You can be free from those things. You can say no to your self-indulgent tendencies in order to say yes to him and walk in obedience. This is the life that you can live. And he has come to give us that life and to bring us into it. And as we sojourn together with Jesus, we have to be clear that, that there are times when that verse, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. There are times when that is like our reality. There are, are plenty of times when that is, that accurately describes what your life looks like. Uh, and it's amazing. It's very easy to, um, to get caught up in, um, the, ref- the quest for refinement and for Jesus to really like, like shape us and mold us and all that kind of stuff. It's very easy to focus, uh, because we want that to end up focusing on all of our deficiencies. 
And so let's be very clear that God is at work among us and there is self-denial happening. There is taking up the cross daily happening. There is following the Lord is happening. All of those things exist among us and, and among every church all around the globe. It's happening. But Lent is in part about us um, kind of like, like opening up our lives and saying, Lord, what do you, what do you want to do here? And so I don't want you to ever feel like I'm always like, like heavy handed and like, like, oh, let's, let's find out how terrible you are and how we can fix it and act as if there's no progress happening in our sanctification. It absolutely is. So please be encouraged that, to know that I see it. I know that you see it and we're, we're, there are, there's victory that's being walked in. However, that's not always the case for us. There, we're going to have those times when we are rebellious. There are going to be those times when the call to discipleship that Jesus maps out for us and models for us is something that we reject. It could be, it could be an afternoon of rejection. It could be a, a, it could be a week. It could be a month. It could be a, a, a season, however you want to think of it. But there are going to be those times when instead of, instead of something like self-denial, we end up with self-indulgence. And times when instead of obedience, we have disobedience. And instead of remaining and abiding in the Lord, we, we disconnect from him in a, in a way. Those are things that we're going to go through. That Jesus, our rabbi, as a model, there are going to be times when we look at him and we say, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. And so as we open up our lives and we say, Lord, will you, Lord, will you speak? Will you point these things out? Will you refine me? We have to know, what, how does Jesus deal with us in that, you know? We know how he deals with self-denial, obedience no matter the cost, and walking in a relationship. We, we get that. What does he do with the opposite of that? What does he do on a bad day for us? What does he do in the midst of rebellion? That's what I want to look at this morning, because this story kind of maps that out for us. In Jesus' own words, he tells his disciples, he says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He acknowledges that there are going to be times when that's going to be the case for us. This, this is how Paul expressed it in Romans 7. These are just a couple of highlights from this pretty dense passage. Uh, see if this sounds familiar. For I do not understand my own actions. I, I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. You ever been in that situation where you're like, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me, but all I want to do right now is just say yes to myself and no to the Lord. That's not what I really want, but it's what I want. You know, like that, that battle that's there. A few verses later, he says, I, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You ever feel that way? We're like, man, I, I want I want to be obedient here, but man, I just I don't know if I got it in me today. I don't know if I have it, if I have what's left in the tank for that. Here's another verse in the same passage. He says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
You know, you can, uh, you almost feel like he's like in this like processing. He's just like, let me just like, just put it all out there on the table here. And he's just churning in it. And then verse 24, I mean, it's like he gets to this apex here and he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I, th- I think he taps into something very significant there is that when, when we are in that place, when you're like, I just, uh, my, uh, like the, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is so weak and it is winning right now. There, he likens it to, like, to death. And you do, you, you carry this, it's just this weight and this garbage that you carry around, you know. And what tends to happen, though, is like once you're there, uh, we, we can very easily project onto God the way that humans are with each other. And we end up actually sometimes just kind of getting into like a, a cycle of that. We, we withdraw instead of coming near to him. Uh, we kind of retreat a little bit into the shadows and that kind of stuff. And, and you, it's very easy to turn inward. And that kind of becomes like how you can live for a little while. Like I said, maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe a month. But we need to, we need to be informed about Jesus' interaction with folks whose spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak, and their flesh is winning. And this story kind of opens up a little bit for us. So, let's look at it. It actually starts the last verse of chapter 7. And this, this story is, it's, when I say that it's unique, it's, it's the earliest manuscripts of John, this, this story's not in there. And uh, it's found later on, and... Uh, a lot of times people don't know what to do with it. And just know that the the most trusted Bible scholars make sure that this story is in here. Um, it's not brought into question of like, did this really happen? And all that kind of stuff. There's just one of those things where those ancient manuscripts, this is something that isn't in the oldest ones, but it shows up later. And they weren't sure what to do with it. And so it's here. And the reason why it's here is because this... This does not uh, endorse a single thing that isn't also found all throughout the Bible. It is absolutely consistent with the character of Jesus, the theology uh, that is mapped out everywhere else. And so it's kind of this unique kind of little story that's here. And it's one that you might be familiar with, and it is a beautiful one, in my opinion. Let's read it. So they each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down. And wrote with his finger on the ground. Okay, so let's let's stop. Let's stop right there. There's a couple of characters in the story, um, and these characters are all basically doing the opposite of what he tells us to do in Luke nine twenty three. It's the opposite of deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. This whole scene that's playing out. These are people who have said no to that instruction. And as I said, yes to themselves. So a couple of characters. One, you have, you have the woman. Now she was caught in the act. 
And that, uh, apparently, it means exactly what it means. Okay? Caught in the act, uh, which, which is like this, uh, the opposite of, of deny yourself. Okay? It's self-indulgence. It's disobedience. It's all that stuff. And so she has the humiliation of her sin uh, being made public. Now, confession is hard enough, okay? But when it becomes like a widespread issue, things really, they really become terrible. And so here they are, they're at the temple. There are, there's a group of people gathered and Jesus is teaching them. And in come the religious leaders with this woman. And uh, she has to stand there while they publicly declare her indiscretion. Now, it's awful. Just an awful situation. If you've ever had to confess something to a group of people, it's, t- it's just terrible. It's embarrassing. And there's a lot of shame associated with it. And so maybe there's a part of you that can identify with this lady in the story. Maybe you were publicly exposed somehow to something that you did, something that everybody knows about. You've had to endure that, like just the difficulties of the entire community knowing your stuff. Second character, there's the man caught in the act of adultery. Now, he, you know, there's no verses to point to with him conveniently. But to be caught in the act of adultery, there's both of them present. And so he gets caught, but for some reason he gets away with it. He doesn't have the public nature and the embarrassment and the humiliation and all those kinds of things. And so without the consequences that she faced, his becomes a private uh, stewing that happens. He has to deal with the, the inner turmoil that comes with sin and the secret shame of no one knowing about it. Now, granted, he got caught. So somebody caught him. So somebody knows, but it ain't the whole town, you know. It's not everyone gathered together to hear Jesus preach that day. I've often wondered if he, like, if he, like, reappeared in the crowd in this whole thing at some point, you know. Like, I've probably watched too much Criminal Minds, you know, where the, uh, the arsonist returns to watch the fireman put out the fire or whatever. But he gets away with it. There's a secret shame, a secretness to his sin. And so maybe, maybe some of us can identify more with him. The woman, it's the same sin. Hers is made public. His is kept private. Maybe there's a way that we relate to each of them. Third character, uh, I'll call him, are the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, they, they had an agenda. So look at, look again at verse 6. This whole situation comes about for this reason. They said, uh, this they said to test him that they may have some charge to bring against him. All right. So here's what they do. They, first of all, they intentionally misquote Moses. All right. Now, if you remember, the enemy misquoted the Bible previously. So this is uh, another one of those tactics used to trip people up because the, Actual words of Moses say that the man and the woman should be put to death. That's troubling. I get it. <laughs> okay. Uh, not here to, I can't get into all the Old Testament stuff. Let's just say that adultery is a really big deal to God. It's commandment seven, that kind of thing. And so uh, try not to get too hung up on that. 
focus more on the fact that they intentionally left the dude out of it. And they made it about this woman. In other words, they decide to use her to accomplish this end. To try to set Jesus up, to try to frame him. Now granted, she sinned, okay? But here she is in maybe the most vulnerable moment of her life. Because these men decided to make an object out of her. To use her for their own pleasure, their own agenda. To use a fellow image bearer for that reason is, uh, it's disgusting. Their judgment of her, I mean, it's, it's palpable. You can just, it's all over the place. And so that judgment and self-righteousness, using someone else for your own gain, putting, uh, putting an, an issue instead of a person you know, so easy to get caught up in, in these like different subjects and debates. And sometimes we forget, Hey, we're talking about people. There's a person involved here. All right. Let's, let's not act like this is just some case study of some, uh, some person or group of people, whatever. They're just made up. We're not talking about like aliens. Okay. We're talking about people made in the image of God. That has to be a part of it. And here were these religious leaders who were supposed to be like, leading the people to righteousness, and yet they use this person. It's the opposite of what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23. And so maybe, I mean, there's lots of examples of us using people. But maybe we can identify with them. The fourth, the fourth character, uh, this one's a little bit ambiguous, is, is the crowd of people. So they're sitting there, they're listening to Jesus teach. They bring in the woman, they're having this debate. And so there's a crowd and they're just kind of, they're just kind of sitting there. And I, and I kind of just like, I was like, there's something there. I just can't figure out what it is. Like they're, they play a role in the story, even though there's not a verse to look at. And it just, the Lord was like, yeah, they, who sits back and just lets this happen? Where's someone being like, uh, hold on a second. We are just listening to Jesus teach. We know that Jesus, I mean, everything he teaches is about the kingdom. And so, like, let's just assume that something he had been teaching them prior to this interruption had something to do with the kingdom. Where's the person with the courage to say, hold on, that's, that's not what we're doing here, right? The passivity of the crowd bugs me so much. To just sit there and do nothing. Reminds me of, uh, of Adam and Eve. In that account where Adam just stands there and lets his wife get lied to and then stands there and let her eat and lets her eat from the tree that's not supposed to eat from and then stands there and takes the fruit from her and eats as well. Like, dude, how weak. He broke the whole world, you know, by being passive. And so the passivity of the crowd, it just really irks me. And we don't really list passivity in the list of sins. You know, we're like murder, anger, adultery, being passive. Never really makes the cut. It's not quite as dramatic. but, But when you think about it, 
is it sinful to sit there and do nothing? To let this woman get murdered in front of you over a misquoted scripture that's trying to be used to, I mean, there's, I could go on. It just, it bothers me. And think about how easy it is to just become flat out lazy when it comes to walking with God and joining him in what he's doing. This might be the most identifiable thing for us. Maybe you're not always getting publicly busted like the woman. Maybe you're not always getting away with sin privately like the man. Maybe you're not falling into judgment and using people like the Pharisees and stuff. But maybe you are passive. Just just on a canoe going through life. No big whoop. We can all find ourselves in the story somewhere, I think. Because we... Whether it's these things I've listed or other things, we all carry this brokenness and it gets exposed here. So in those times when we have been rebellious in some way, we're like someone in this story, all of them saying yes to self instead of no, saying I'm going to be disobedient instead of being obedient, saying I want nothing to do with God instead of staying close to God. What does Jesus do in that reaction, uh, in that situation? Look at verse 7. So he's been, he's knelt down, he's writing in the dirt, you know, can't wait to ask him what he was writing. Verse seven, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Hmm. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. What a, I mean, is there a better answer in all of human history than that? Here's what I think Jesus says to the rebellious. There's three points very quickly. The first one, I think what he would say to them, like, it's basically this, you need me. I think that's what he says to us. And in his response, I think he's saying, you, you need me. Every single one of those people, without exception, needed the gracious gift of a divine redeemer. Every one of them. Regardless of any kind of distinctive or label you can, you can come up with, it's the same for every single person that was there. The woman... The, the Pharisees and the scribes, the crowd that was gathered, uh, the, the man who I'm just going to assume was standing there observing or whatever. Everyone in the story, all of them, absolutely, Jesus said, every one of you needs me. When we have times of rebellion, we have to think like that. Like, we, we enjoy so much... Just, just, I'm not talking about we as a church. I'm talking about just we, just human nature. We, we like to categorize sin, you know? And then we like to compare the different categories and where we are in it sometimes. And, and it leads to us like minimizing certain things or obsessing over something else, you know. We're like, hey, let's make a huge deal out of this one thing. And let's kind of ignore this other one, even though they're both, you know, destroying us, you know. And the whole time Jesus is saying, look, I'm here to die once for all of you, for all of your sins. You all need me. I was thinking about the, the old hymn last night. Uh, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is what? Small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me 
thine all in all. In those rebellious moments, we just, we, they need to be a reminder to us that we need him. That we don't just need him in those initial moments of salvation. That Matthew and Ben, they didn't just need him uh, at Camp Living Hope. They didn't just need him there to like cross them from death into life through faith. They need him every day. They need him every day since and all the rest of their life. There's, there's never a point where we're like, you know, I think I'm good. I think I'm, I think I can kind of coast now, you know. It's every moment. It's, it's, is there a moment that a branch doesn't need its vine? No. It appears that way. You cut a tree branch off of a tree. At first, it looks great. And within hours, it's already wilting. There's a lot of heartache that comes when we, when we become convinced somehow that we're okay and we don't really need him, that we're, that we're fine. But if... If our own flesh is whispering that, like, it, doesn't that just, isn't that what self-reliance is? You don't really need God today. You're doing pretty good. Things are fine. You know, you're comfortable. You don't need him. You're not messing up too bad. You're not, at least you're not like that person. I mean, there's so many ways I could go with that, but like, can we just agree that there is this, the, this uh, tendency at times to just feel like you really don't need him that much? Like, oh, don't worry about me. You go tend to other things. When in reality, it's all the time, all the time, all the time. Paul's complete thought, I read in Romans 7 a minute ago, 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the next verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's like, that's who rescues me from this body of death. That's who comes to me when I'm, when I'm saying what I want to do. I'm not, I don't think I'm able to do it. I don't know if I have the strength. I don't know if I got it in me today. Who can rescue me from this torment? Thanks be to God. You need him. I need him. There's never a point where that stops being true. Second thing I think he would say, it's actually, I'm just going to put two and three together. Look at verse 10. So now they've all gone. Notice that the older ones left first. Okay. The wisdom of life versus the arrogance of youth. We see it there. Don't get mad at me. It's just what the Bible says. Uh, Verse 10, it's just Jesus and the woman. Okay. So they've cleared out this entire space where there's like people all the time. And so they're all walking away. And my guess is other people are coming and they're like, hey, don't go that way. It's weird. <laughs> he's going to make, he's going to make you uh, feel weird about things. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, uh, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Notice how Jesus separates the woman's identity from her behavior. Like he's able to look at her and he does not see an adulteress. He does not see someone whose sin was just exposed publicly. He doesn't see someone that he's like, I just bailed you out. You know, you know, you owe me one kind of thing. Like he sees a daughter made in the image of God who has been saying yes to self and disobedience. He says, those are two separate things about you. So he says, I don't bring condemnation to you, but I'm going to tell you something about your sin. You need to, you need to leave it alone. You, you, you can't keep in, engaging in this way. 
See, we're so good at lumping behavior and identity together. You know, you see someone and and you're, there's all these different labels that can come. And so we kind of tend to push those together and all throughout the Bible, God's like, no, 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 those are two different things. You are not your behavior. You're not your job. You're not your marital status. You're not your family status. You're not your income. You are not what you drive. You're not how you look. You're not how you dress. I could keep going and go. You're not all these things the world's trying to tell you you are. You are a son or you're a daughter. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. And I want to get all of you in Christ. And then from there, then those behavioral things, those will begin to change into more. But let's be clear. Those are two different things. God is far more interested in who you are than how you act. Which is not to say your actions aren't important. Because then there comes a point where it's like, why are you acting that's contrary to who you are? And that's a whole other sermon. But just know that when in those rebellious moments, Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, look, I, am, I love you and I'm for you in every way. I am absolutely on board with you. And I'm absolutely against the sinful patterns of your life because they're destroying you and they're bad for you. And that's not what I have for you. I love you and I'm for you. I'm against the things that you're doing. Those are not contrary. But in our world, they're, they're, they're so together, you know. You, you speak out on something, you're like, hey, I think this is wrong. And someone's like, well, you don't know me. And what do you know about me? I'm not saying that about you. I'm saying about this. That's where all that comes from. But I don't really care about social debates and all that kind of stuff. What I care about is are the people in this room able to, in their rebellion, come before the Lord and know that he looks at you and says, you need me, don't you? And we say, yes, so much. And to know that he's going to say, I love you and I'm for you and we're going to get to work on this. To know that he is not endorsing our sin, but he is endorsing us in every way. That is going to limit those times of rebellion. That's going to make them shorter. It's going to keep us closer to him. It's, it's going to lead to the kind of change that we want to see in our lives. And so I, I just want to, I hope, I want you to be encouraged this morning to know that Jesus is not mad at you. That if you have been in a rebellious pattern, he is not mad at you. He does not approve of what you're doing. Okay. But he absolutely loves you. He's all about you. So confess, repent, join him in what he is doing. So whether it's public sin or private sin, you got to let him walk into the light. If you need help loving people rather than judging them or using them, he'll help you. If you're, if passivity is your, just your deal, he can jumpstart you. He loves you and he's for you 100%. And so much so that he's not going to be passive and let you do things that are harmful. No parent would sit there and let their kids just hurt themselves. And he's a better parent than any parent that's ever we've ever experienced. So I want you to be encouraged this, this morning. We're going to have uh, some opportunity to respond and process some of that. There may be some things that you need to, um, that you need to talk to him about. I mean, there need to be some confessions that you make to him, maybe to other people. Um, we have a communion line that will be open here in a minute. And what, 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 what better way than to meet him at the table? Him, he's offering you his body and his blood. And you're saying, that's, a, I, that's what I need. And he says, here you go. Here it is. You can come and kneel and pray. A couple of us will be on the front row if you want to be prayed with. We're going to sing. 
All these rhythms of response are designed for us to take advantage of this moment before we dismiss and things get busy and all that kind of stuff. So I want you to stand together. I pray for us as the, as the band comes back up, as the tables get prepared. God, I'm thankful that uh, even though that story wasn't in the earliest of John's writing, uh, all those manuscripts, I'm glad that it made the cut because it speaks to me. I think it speaks to all of us. At one point or another, we're probably all able to identify with, with the woman and the man and the crowd and the religious leaders. We have all gotten to that point where we, we're just weary because the things we want to do, we're, just, we're not doing them. We feel stuck or trapped or just feel like we just lack the ability, the grace to do it. And so help us, Lord, to, uh, to take, take that to heart, to acknowledge that we need you. No matter how good life might be or how rough or whatever it is, that we are a needy people, but in the best of ways. We thank you that you've not come to bring condemnation to us, but you have come to tell us the truth about sin and what it's doing to us. So I pray today that we're able to grab onto that love and to reject the sin and death uh, and the lies that come with those things. And then in these moments, whether it's singing or praying or uh, taking communion or whatever it may be, however we connect with you the most, I pray that these next few moments are filled with uh, steps of obedience in the right direction. Uh, We love you. We thank you. pray this in your name. Amen. All right, our tables are open. You can come whenever you're ready. This is where you you take the bread, you dip it in the juice, and you take it. Um, But however you want to respond right now, let's give the Lord these next few moments.